Well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm preparing to preach through the Gospel of John, which is quite an undertaking. In the weeks leading up to starting through the Gospel of John, I'm going to be teaching on some topics. And so these are going to be topical sermons as we look forward to preaching an expositional series through the Gospel of John. One of the topics we've been looking at the last few weeks is the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And so we've asked similar questions over the last few weeks. I could ask you, what if you had the promise that every wrong committed against you could be vindicated in a way that is consistent with perfect justice? What if I could promise you that every harm, every wrong committed against you could be dealt with in a way consistent with perfect justice? And you say that means uh, nobody will get away with anything. Uh, Anything perpetrated against me, uh, they're going to have to pay for that or that will be dealt with in some way consistent with perfect justice? Yeah. What if you had the promise that every harm perpetrated against you also carried meaning? purpose. That is, that every harm perpetrated against you is ultimately working even for your good. What if you had a promise that every sin and harm that you perpetrated against others could be forgiven? What if every harm that you perpetrated against others could be forgiven while you yourself were entirely unworthy of that forgiveness? And what if that forgiveness was made possible by someone suffering on your behalf while you were still in your sin? If I could make all those promises to you about justice and all your hurts having meaning and anything that you've committed being forgiven by somebody suffering on your behalf, the question is, how would that then change the way you deal with the hurts and offenses that others commit against you? How would it change your desire to harbor bitterness and animosity and resentment and a desire for vengeance if you had those promises? And obviously you can tell that from the last few weeks, you know we actually have all those promises. I'll tell you how those promises ought to affect how we view the offenses that are committed against us. The promise that every wrong will be vindicated according to God's perfect standard of justice. By the way... When we say that every wrong committed against you will be vindicated according to God's perfect standard of justice, that doesn't always mean that the person who has harmed you is going to pay. Sometimes that means that that individual will have their sins cast upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them. And this one coming to faith in Christ will have his payment for their sins counted as if it is theirs. But if you have that promise that every wrong committed against you will be vindicated, that should enable us to what? To release others from the debts that they have incurred against us. It should liberate us from constantly dwelling upon the offenses and injustices that others others have perpetrated against us. Because in reality, when people offend us, and you've been hurt by people, in reality, when we think that we are holding them to account by having this bitterness and animosity and desire for them to pay, they are not the only ones in prison. We are imprisoned by our own desire for vengeance. The promise then that every harm carried out against us also has purpose and meaning 
That should affect us. The fact that everything that happens in our life ultimately works for our good as God's children, that should free us from feelings of helplessness. That should free us from feeling as if we are victims. That should enable us to accept the most difficult circumstances in life with a feeling of hope and even trust. And finally, the promise that every sin that we have committed against others can be forgiven freely. While we still exist in our sinfulness, well, that should cause us what? A deep sense of indebtedness. A deep sense of indebtedness and a feeling of shame and hypocrisy. If we hold others to account for their sins against us, while well, we know that we have been freed from all the sins that we have committed against God. What we've seen over the past few weeks is that, again, all these are exactly the promises that God has given us. That He's given us these to us for the very purpose of training us to become forgivers. And so this morning, if you're here and you are a Christian, God has forgiven you all of your sins on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not your own, in part so that you then would turn and offer that same free forgiveness to others. Through forgiveness, he's making forgivers. And so we said uh, the last few weeks that, you know, we have a kind of a thumbnail sketch definition of forgiveness. And I said this, forgiveness is a determination not to hold an offender to account for their offense. It is not a decision to simply internalize and then say, oh, I'm just not going to mention it again. Instead, it is a decisive action whereby we put away all bitterness and anger and refuse to replay or dwell upon those offenses again. It's a giving up of any desire to retaliate. It's giving up of any desire to see our offenders suffer for what they have done. It's a desire to offer the very same forgiveness that the Lord Jesus Christ has offered to us. That's forgiveness. And so we could go further this morning and then maybe answer this question. Based upon all the promises that we've seen, how then do we forgive? You say, okay, well, that's fine. You've given us a bunch of knowledge. But, I mean, what do we do with it? How do we actually forgive somebody? Well, I think what uh, might be helpful, we're going to take some of what we've already seen and just put it under four quick headings. And, And these might help you because they're easy to remember. So, first of all, based upon everything we've just seen, how do you actually then forgive? Well, number one, you just rehearse. What do I mean by rehearse? You don't rehearse all the past hurts, as we tend to do. Instead, you rehearse your own forgiveness. You remember that you have been forgiven by God while you were entirely unworthy. You remember that this forgiveness was accomplished by Jesus, who suffered for you, loving you while you were still a sinner. And so, somebody offends you, okay, Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember what he did with your sin. Rehearse that in your mind. Remember that, okay? Number one. Number two, relinquish. Relinquish. What is that? Take what you believe is your right for justice. And remember we said God has his sphere of responsibility and we have our sphere of responsibility. And what we do when we are harboring unforgiveness is we are taking that desire for justice that belongs to God and we bring it in our sphere. Well, instead, what do we, we relinquish that to God. And say, you are the just judge. Only you will judge perfectly. I know you are perfectly consistent. I know that you are the holy and righteous judge. And you will not allow any sin to go unpunished. And so I just release, I relinquish this to you. Lord, you will take care of this in your timing, according to your will, as you desire. And if this person pays for their sin, 
That's according to your justice. If this person is forgiven all of their sin on the basis of Christ's righteousness, then that's your purview as well, but I relinquish it to you. And so we remember or we we rehearse and we relinquish and we rest. We rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that even the hurts caused by others, even the hurts caused by unbelievers, even the hurts caused by wicked men and women, even those things God ultimately uses in his sovereignty for his divine purposes, which include what? If you're a believer, you're good in his glory. That's Romans 8. And so we rest in his sovereign control. Lord, you're in control. I'm not helplessly adrift upon the waves of fate. It's not perpetual victimhood. Things are not out of control. You are sovereign. And so I can read all of these events in that context. You're in control. And so I can rest. So rehearse, relinquish, rest, and then release. Then release. Release the person you've had in your crosshairs from the debt that you feel they owe you. Release them from being the targets of your wrath. Let them go free, just as God has allowed you to go free. And so, rehearse, relinquish, rest, and release. When thoughts of bitterness and anger creep back into our mind, rehearse, relinquish, rest, release. When you start dwelling on past offenses, remember, relinquish, rest, release. When you start thinking again about how you would like others to pay, remember, relinquish, rest, release. That's really what we've been learning in the past few weeks. And now that's putting it in the positive. The past few weeks we put it in the negative. And we said, hey, listen, unforgiveness is destructive. It's destructive. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to your relationship with God. It's destructive to our relationship to others. And so we began to look at 10 of these. We've seen four so far the destructive effects of unforgiveness. We said, hey, unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God, the fact that we've been forgiven. It belittles the suffering of God, believing that though Jesus suffered for our sin, we're unwilling to suffer for the sins that others perpetrate against us. He being so worthy, so unjust for his suffering, and yet we are willing to say, as if to say, we are of greater worth than he and unwilling to suffer sins perpetrated against us. It also bypasses the justice of God and it balks at the sovereignty of God as we saw last week. Well, this week we continue. And let's look at Matthew chapter 6 again, verse 12. This is the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And towards the end of this model prayer, Jesus says that we ought to pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he adds this, and this is the only element of this prayer that he adds anything to after he gives the prayer. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, that's hard. That's harsh. Kind of hard to understand, actually. All this talk about free forgiveness, and all of a sudden it seems like there's a condition on forgiveness. Ask the Lord to forgive you your debts. And immediately, even in that prayer, that is linked to our forgiveness of others. Lord, forgive me and think about this. By praying this prayer, we are setting the standard for God's forgiveness. Forgive me as we also have forgiven our debtors. To the extent that I've forgiven others, forgive me. Uh Uh-oh. And Jesus then explains that. Why would he add, as we also have forgiven others? He says, for... 
if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive you. Now, remember, we made the distinction. This is not what we call soteriological forgiveness. This is not forgiveness for salvation. The whole prayer is in the context of a child speaking to his father. The context is relationship. The, the relationship is not in question here. This is a father. This is a child praying to his heavenly father. And so this is not about forgive me so that I can become your child. Forgive me so that I can be. That's not what this is. This is relational forgiveness. God is saying you're my child, but there's something between us. As long as there's something between you and a fellow brother. You cannot have bitterness towards a brother and then feel that you can come to me and worship freely, as we're going to see. That's hard. This is a protection against hypocritical religion. What he's saying is that if you want to worship, you've got to be right with others. You can't have bitterness and broken relationships and burned bridges and all this everywhere you go, and then, oh, but I'm so right with God. It doesn't work that way. And so... We see that forgiveness is destructive. It's destructive in our relationship towards God on a horizontal level. And we've seen four of those so far, uh, destructive elements. Today we're going to see two last ones. There's six of these, and then we're going to look at four destructive effects of unforgiveness in relationship to to one another. But the two we're going to look at today is this. When we harbor unforgiveness towards others, it is destructive in our relationship towards God because, number one, it breaks the commandments of God, as we're going to see, and number two, it bars the worship of God that we've already just touched on. And so, first of all, unforgiveness breaks the commandments of God. We are all legalists at heart, aren't we? We love externals. We just get it right on the outside. Who cares what the inside is like? And we kind of have a scale of sins And so the major sins are the ones that are outward and people know about. The minor sins are the ones that are inside and nobody knows about. Is that right, though? Is that biblical to make that dichotomy? No. We often excuse the sin of unforgiveness because if we just harbor bitterness in our hearts, it's no big deal. It's a victimless crime. What did did Jesus do all throughout his earthly ministry when he's speaking to the Pharisees Repeatedly what he did is he, he showed them that their religion was hypocritical because they focused on the outside and not the inside. He showed them that the heart mattered. And so in Matthew chapter 15, he says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What we're going to see is that if we're going to honor God with our lips, it's only acceptable to him if also our hearts are honoring him. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Why were they hypocrites? For you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You can make a tomb look beautiful, but at the end of the day, it's just a container for a rotting dead body. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The point is, God does not accept hypocritical religion that focuses on the outside but doesn't have a heart that's right with him. And so, too, the believer who outwardly appears to be righteous but in their heart is bitter and unforgiving and so on is unacceptable and offers unacceptable worship, as we're going to see. Mark 12.30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is internal. This is the heart. 
This heart which is right with God is also a heart, as we've seen, that must be right with his brothers and sisters. This has always been God's standard. This is not a matter of, all oh, the Old Testament was about the law and the outward, and the New Testament's about the heart. Now, what Jesus does when he talks to the Pharisees and he focuses on the heart, he's showing them that this is what the standard has always been, and they have it wrong. All the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, You shall not hate your brother. How? In your heart. You should not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin against him because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's always been a matter of the heart. God's people are not permitted to harbor hatred in their hearts towards their brothers. The fact is, we can break the commandments of God in our hearts. Be just as guilty of breaking in a uh, commandment physically. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying, Listen. You think you're righteous because you haven't broken the outward commandment? It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. I've never murdered. Well, good for you, but you're hateful. I've never punched anybody in the face. Okay, but you've been angry with them. I've never harmed anybody physically. Yeah, but you called them a fool. Saying it's about the heart, it's not about the externals, and far be it from us to think that we're okay with God because we got the outside in order. The harboring of internal attitudes of bitterness and animosity and resentment and a desire for vengeance and overall unforgiveness means that our heart is not right. Our heart is saddled with sin, which must be confessed, and if we're believers, we'll be forgiven. Withholding forgiveness from others out of hate, is a violation of the spirit of the sixth commandment. We see this in 1 John uh, 3, verse 15. I mentioned a a passage earlier, and I said that it's harsh in Matthew chapter 6. Well, in Matthew chapter 6 is harsh. This is far more. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you're looking for the off-ramp at this point. What is this? The hatred that exists within our hearts is the seed. That seed, if allowed to germinate, when it comes into full bloom, would be what? It'd be murder. Hatred is murder in seed form. We often don't allow it to germinate. We don't allow it to come into full bloom, thankfully, right? But the reality is, John says, that that hatred that you are willing to tolerate, you compartmentalize your Christian faith and say, I'm right with God, I got my... My morning devotion's going on, and I listen to preaching and so on. Yeah, but you got this corner of your heart where you reserve it and say off-limits to God, and that's where all that hate and vengeance and animosity and bitterness and unforgiveness is. And what John is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit gets keys to every room of your heart. John's stated purpose for his epistle is that we might know that we have eternal life. And so First John, he gives us all these tests of eternal life. This is how you know that you're a Christian, and this is one of them. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What's commandment? What commandment is he talking about here? This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, that's the, that's, that's the law of Christ. That's John 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And don't you love that Jesus sets the parameters for this love? As I have loved you, love one another. Well, how has he loved us? In relationship to our sin. He forgave us. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He forgave us freely when we were absolutely undeserving, and he suffered as a result of our sin. He bore that sin. I mean, he absorbed the consequence of that sin. He suffered because of the sin that we perpetrated against God. That's how he loved us. And then he says, love others the way I loved you. That's the commandment. So the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you, and also you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. This will be the mark if you have love for one another. So I'm a Christian. Show me your love. I'm a Christian. Show me how you treat your brother. I'm a Christian. Well, show me how you deal with offenses, right? The test and evidence of our discipleship is that we keep the commandments of God. And uh, Jesus says the commandment is this, love one another. And not just love one another by your own standard, but love one another by my standard and how I've loved you. And you say, well, I don't hate. I mean, John talks about hate. I don't really hate that person. I don't hate him. I don't hate her. Well, John really doesn't give us more than two options. He contrasts love and hate. And he says that if you're not loving, you're hating, basically, is... uh, the, the, the two poles there that we can choose from. He says, don't hate but love. And since biblical love always is expressed through action, if we aren't hating our brother, then how are we going to treat our brother? If we're not hating our sister, how are we going to treat our sister? Well, with love, which means we're going to be patient. It means that we're going to be kind. It means that we're not going to be envious. It means we're not going to be boastful. It means we're not going to be arrogant or rude. It means we're never going to insist upon our own way. It means we're never going to be irritable. It means we're going to be forbearing. It means that we're going to even endure their faults. I mean, that's all 1 Corinthians 13, right? It doesn't just look good on a fridge or on a Hallmark card. It's good to practice too, right? If we don't hate our brother, then we're going to love our brother. If we're going to love our brother, it's going to be tangible. You're going to be able to see it in your life. In John's logic, anything short of active love is hate, and that hate breaks the commandments of God. There's no place for unforgiveness. We're commanded to love. This type of love is a mark of genuine discipleship. This is evidence that we're truly his followers. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So these things are, are, are inseparable. You love God, you love the brothers. You love the brothers, as evidence that you love God. So you can't excuse or downplay unforgiveness simply because it's internal. Just because it's a heart issue. According to John, unforgiveness is a damning violation of the Sixth Commandment and a violation of Christ's command that we love one another. Well, lastly, not only does unforgiveness break the commandments of God, But unforgiveness bars the worship of God. It bars the worship of God. Considering everything that we've seen, 
And again, we're ending this section on the sixth destructive effect of unforgiveness in regards to our relationship to God. Considering all that we've seen, the ungratefulness for God's forgiveness towards us, and the failure to entrust our offenses to the justice of God, and the belittling of the sacrifice of Christ by our refusal to also suffer as he suffered, and the disregard for Christ's commandment to love each other and to love our enemies, and the decision not to rest in God's sovereign purposes, with all of that, it's no wonder that God says to the unforgiving person, when you come to me to worship, I want you to go take care of all that other stuff first. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, what does he say? If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He's making the same connection here in Matthew 5 that he does in Matthew 6 with the Lord's Prayer. You're going to ask God for forgiveness. You better make sure you're right with others and you've forgiven them. And he says here, you've come and offered a gift to the altar. And there you're, you're ready to offer your worshiping, right? You're sacrificing. You're worshiping. You got this gift at the altar. Wait a second. I remember that my brother has something against me. That is, I've perpetrated something against him or her. I'm guilty. He has something against me. God is saying, you got to go take care of that. Stop what you're doing. I, I can't accept this gift from you when your heart is so far from me. Your heart is not right. So go deal with it. So take care of the horizontal before you come and worship vertically. The implication here is that God doesn't want us coming to worship if we're not right with others. Again, this is not an unusual standard in Scripture. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah prophesying to Judah, says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's not talking to Sodom. He's talking to Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's comparing Judah to the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Immoral fit for the judgment of God. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's saying, and, and all these things that here he's saying, I don't want to have anything to do with these things. These are things that formerly God has prescribed for worship. But here he says, I don't want any of it. Why are you trampling my courts? Why are you even approaching me? These festivals that you're keeping and so on. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Why? Because something else was required in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You've got to be right. You've got to be right in all these other areas. I mean, you're, you're sinning, you're oppressing. 
uh, you're doing evil, you're, you're, you're not seeking justice, and so on, your heart's not right. And you're going to come and go through the motions of worship? God destroys hypocritical worship. This ritualistic, non-heartfelt, going through the motions. God, I don't want to have anything to do with it. He wants the heart. Worship from an unforgiving person is a hypocritical worship. And it's a hypocritical worship that God does not accept. So, if we come to worship and remember that a brother or sister has something against us, what do we do? He says, go, be reconciled. Okay. Make sure everything's good, on, again, on the horizontal, horizontal plane before you come to God and worship vertically. Now, that had to do with the situation of you coming to worship and you realize that you've sinned against a brother. Now, follow the logic here. You've come to worship, you realize you've sinned against a brother. I've offended somebody. They're, they're holding something against me because of something I've done. And maybe it's a misunderstanding, but that doesn't matter. They've got something against you. So he says, you get up and go take care of it. Okay, so you picture that. Somebody actually physically had an altar worshiping in a Jewish context. And here, somebody's got something against me. I can't do this right now. I have to go take care of that first. Okay, so they get up and they go. Well, what if it's a situation where it's not that you've sinned against a brother and you have to get up and go take care of it? What if it's the other way around and somebody sinned against you? Then what do you do? Well, Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So now this is interesting because we got two people. One, I understand that uh, I've sinned against my brother. He's got something against me, and I'm responsible to get up and go take care of it. But then on the other side, it says, If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. Well, what's going to happen if both of these individuals are obedient to these commands? They're going to bump into each other. They're going to meet halfway. Oh, where are you going? Oh, I was just coming to look for you. Whether we have offended somebody, we need to go and take care of that. Whether somebody's offended us, we need to go and we need to go uh, deal with that. The idea being that we are to be overseers of one another's faith. The idea is, I know that if my brother sinned against me, on one hand, I might be harboring unforgiveness, and so my heart's not right, so I need to take care of this. On the other hand, I'm so concerned for them, I know they can't come to God and worship properly. I know they might go through the motions, but I know their heart is not right. Evidenced by the fact that they have hurt me. They obviously have something against me. They obviously have some bitterness or something going on there. I know they've sinned against me, and I know they haven't made it right. So I also know they actually cannot worship God in sincerity. So really, I have a desire for them even. I want to go make sure that we make this thing right. And so both the offender and both the offended have a responsibility to seek reconciliation, to make sure that this relationship is okay so both parties can worship in sincerity. And again, in this way, we oversee each other's faith. The fact is, we all are going to have struggle forgiving. We're going to be tempted to bitterness. But we need to consider not only ourselves, but even the faith of others. So unforgiveness cannot help, ultimately, to harm our relationship with God. Grieves the Holy Spirit, quenches the Holy Spirit. In fact, God has designed our faith in such a way that we cannot worship God. 
if we're harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. He says, I'll forgive you. And the standard by which I'll forgive you is how you've forgiven others. And so again, as we mentioned earlier, this is insurance against hypocritical faith. God's designed the faith in such a way where it must be genuine, it must be real. He's designed it in a way that hypocrites can't truly worship. The evidence of repentance towards God is seen in our relationships with one another. And so in conclusion, back to the introduction. God, through forgiveness, is creating forgivers. Because of who he is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ, we, out of all the peoples of the world, should be the most free forgivers. It's probably good to do a heart check, right? Is there some situation in your life currently, maybe something that's been ongoing for years, where you've been harboring unforgiveness in your heart? Something that may not really be affecting the offending party very much at all, but is tearing you up. Apply the principles. Our forgiveness came at a great cost as Jesus suffered for the sins that we committed. Our Heavenly Father promised that all matters of vengeance are His and we can entrust to Him. Because our God is sovereign, we do not have to feel that harm caused by others has left us as victims of fates, but we can trust that even the greatest trials are full of meaning and purpose and that they ultimately work for our good. And then through His own promises, based on His own character, and through everything He's done for us through Christ, He's given us everything that we need through relationship with Him to be able to do what? To remember, and to relinquish, and to rest, and then to release. You're going to do your heart a service, and then because of that process is going to include you going to reconcile with others, you're going to do them a service as well. I'll tell you what, you will be shocked and amazed that when you go and approach somebody because you're a Christian, and you go and approach somebody who's not a Christian, and you seek reconciliation because you're done with the bitterness in your heart, you understand how foreign that is to the culture? So that to do something like that is going to leave such an impression on that person, that it's going to serve God's purposes, that he's working in that person's heart, maybe ultimately to draw them to salvation because they see the transformation in you? Unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. Unforgiveness bypasses the justice of God. Unforgiveness belittles the suffering of God. Unforgiveness breaks the commandments of God. Unforgiveness balks at the sovereignty of God. And unforgiveness bars the worship of God. Continue next week, and we're going to start looking at how unforgiveness affects our relationships with one another. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you again for your word and for its clarity. Lord, we, none of us this morning are beyond bitterness. None of us this morning are beyond harboring unforgiveness. It may not be much of an overstatement to say that every one of us in some way has relationships that remain unreconciled. It may not be too much of an overstatement to say that all of us in some way have pockets, corners of our heart where there's bitterness, desires for vengeance, unforgiveness. And I pray that for our own spiritual good, you'll help us to release those things, to be right in our heart. And Lord, we recognize that even in this, as we seek to forgive others, this forgiveness will be imperfect and still be tainted with our own sinfulness. And so we know that you're gracious and you're merciful. We understand that even as we seek to forgive others, we're going to fail, but you're gracious Uh, the suffering of Christ and his payment on the cross even covers our sins of unforgiveness. And so we know that ultimately, when it comes to our 
standing with you. This is all covered by Christ. And so we know that our uh, standing with you is not in question here. So we thank you for the security that we have in our relationship with you, thanks to Christ. But for our own sake and for our own free access to you and our own sense of uh, ability to receive answers to prayer and so on, pray you to help us to deal with these struggles of the heart. Help us to do the hard work of even approaching others. Um, it's awkward, difficult, but necessary for our heart and for theirs. So I pray you to help us to seek reconciliation where reconciliation is necessary and help us be able to worship you with sincerity. And then lastly, Lord, I just pray for any this morning who are not yet believers. Would you offer free forgiveness? Unlike us, would you love us even while we are sinners? You sent your son to die for us while we were still in our sin. While we were still violating your standard of holiness. While we were still rebels against you. While we were in that state, you loved us. Not only did you love us, but you loved us to the point of sending your own son to suffer for us. So, Lord, we pray for those this morning who are not yet believers. We pray that they'd understand their need for forgiveness of their sin against you. And that they'd also understand that Jesus came to provide that forgiveness. That he lived a perfect life, fulfilling all your law, which we could not do. He died on the cross bearing your wrath towards our sin so that we could go free. So I pray for these who are not yet Christians. I pray that they'd understand their need for Jesus. They'd understand that Jesus has died to save them. I pray that they'd understand that free forgiveness is available to them. They'd understand that Jesus offers eternal life. They understand through Jesus' forgiveness, they actually become your children, enter into relationship with you, and that they're forever secure as your child. So pray your Holy Spirit will impress this upon the hearts of those who have come this morning who are not yet Christians. That they'll know they need to be forgiven and that Jesus offers that free forgiveness. We thank you for all of this in the name of your Son. I pray that he would help us to apply what we've learned. Amen.